You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. What belt do you want us to bury you in? And, you know, they're thinking it's 12 degree black belt, right? And he turned up to them and said, bury me in my white belt um, because I'm going on a journey to, of learning, essentially. Hey guys, you now listen to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and today I've got a very special guest with me as part of a how to series. Today I'm joined by John Kessel. Good morning, John. How are you? Good morning from 3,000 meters in Colorado. So, John, uh, first of all, thank you again for being with me this morning. For those that don't know who you are, aren't familiar with your work, John, would you mind just going through a bit of a brief uh, breakdown of who you are and what you do exactly? Well, you know, I'm pretty much a volleyball coach of coaches for the last 50 years, although I've also been coaching teams, um, the Olympic level to the Paralympic level, uh, beach volleyball, gold medal, uh, as a team leader, and uh, at the same time, I uh, assisted our women's team to, on the Paralympic side, to bronze, silver, silver, and gold, just as a, you know, kind of a coach of coaches. Um, usually, I start on projects and get things going and then hand them off to other people, so I've done quite a bit, and because I deal with principles of learning, um, it ends up being that I do a lot of other sports and get a steal, for lack of a better word, their ideas um, as as I've gone along. And I've been doing it for 50 years. Uh, 1970 was my first year college coaching. So um, it's been a, a fun half century. Mm. Thank you for that, John. I just want to start off by, you know, you know, going to some of your work that, you know, really caught my eye in particular was this idea of the white belt mentality. I know it's something that you, you know, you uh, I guess, use as a, f- a framework of some sorts within the work that you do with coaches in particular. Would you mind just going into a bit of detail around that and, you know, we can maybe delve a little delve a little bit more into it as we go through it? Yeah, well, it, you know, the whole, in the end, <laughs> everything, whether it's from the white belt side in judo um, or anything that you're doing in football, it's not what you know, it's what, um, they've learned if you're doing your job as a coach and, you know, John Wooden says something to the effect of, you know, title of a book that 
topic, you haven't taught them if they haven't learned. And so what I'm going to be talking about here is this is no longer really an athletic competition so much as it is a, a learning competition. If you had two teams and, and you can learn faster with your style and ideas and things, um, you're going to you're going to beat the other teams over the course of time. Uh, now, that said, I, I think the reason you started this whole podcast is pretty fascinating. And that is that you wanted to share ideas uh, about talent and youth development, you know, world leader type things. It's it's really important to share ideas. You know, if I've got an apple and you've got an apple and we swap apples, we still only have one apple. But if I'm swapping ideas and you're swapping ideas, uh, we're going to have a lot more ideas. That's a big deal in my book. So one of the places I learned an idea was was from judo. And in their world, their man that founded their entire sport, essentially, um, became a 12th belt black belt. And he was coming across from Europe to the US on a boat back then in like in the 20s. And they realized the family realized he was going to pass away and not make it. And so the family said, Hey, how do you what belt do you want us to bury you in? And, you know, they're thinking it's 12th degree black belt, right? And he turned up to them and said, bury me in my white belt. Um, because I'm going on a journey to, of learning, essentially. That has always caught my thought pattern in the same way I learned from a little story on Michelangelo. And he apparently was sitting there up painting the Sistine Chapel at the age of 87, and he turned down to his assistants and he said, Ancora imparo, which in Italian means still learning. And I think that's the key to anybody listening to this and what you're doing. You're on this journey of, 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 of constant learning. And that's what too many coaches fail to do. They just teach the way they were taught and they don't seek out new ideas like you're presenting here on this podcast. Mm. Um, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's what it's about. It's still learning, even though you're, maybe very experienced definitely and I, you know you talked there about you know still learning so you know i really want to delve a little bit more deeper into that then you know how do, how do we get to that point where you know obviously for for you it was that white belt mentality it was one of the things that you know as you said caught your thought pattern around okay you want to constantly be evolving looking at different ways i can develop and uh, you know take you back a few moments we talk about the, the concept of swapping ideas now it, i think you know certainly in my sport um and I'm, you know, it'd be interesting to find out your own experiences around this. So at, at times, you know, as you put it, a lot of coaches aren't that willing to share ideas. It's almost everything's kept tight knit, and it's, you know, uh, you know, then comes this old phrase, you know, the, the best, the best coaches are often, you know, some of the best thieves, and it, it, it's through that sharing of ideas that we look at how we evolve and, you know, revolutionize some of the stuff that we're doing. Sometimes it's not revolutionary. Sometimes it's not, you know, um, reinventing the wheel, but it's just refining what's already out there. So. How do we get to that point where we can overcome and put that that uh, keep it to yourself mentality away from everything? Well, you gave me two things I'm going to uh, discuss here. The, the first is 
the idea of kind of refining what you know. Um, I urge all your listeners to consider when they learn to ride a bike. And that's probably more dangerous than soccer. I don't think too many people die in soccer. They don't certainly don't die in volleyball versus boxing or motorsports, but they're all a learned motor program. And as much as you've learned football from your coach and the things that he or she has done, think about back to when you learned to ride a bike. Now I'm going to ask four questions of you to see how well you were loved. Okay. So my first question to you is, did your parents, because you can die riding a bike, learning to ride a bike is, you know, a little dangerous, especially when you're young and don't have all the processing skills of, you know, an adult and knowledge. So when you learned to ride a bike, did your parents hire you a bike riding coach? Um, interestingly enough, uh, I was offered to, but that wasn't necessarily when I was learning. That was probably more learning how to, I guess, ride a bike on the road rather than actually learning Correct. how to ride the bike itself. Just ride, a bike. Just um, ride the bike itself. Did uh, your parents no, hire a coach? No, my, 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 okay. my two older brothers taught me how to ride a bike. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Then how many drills did your two older brothers do with you? How many drills did they do? Um, I guess in the context of riding a bike, I wouldn't really call anything they did as a draw. It's more just, right, there you go, get on it and start riding. This is what you have exactly. to do. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And did they send you to bike riding summer camp or to a training camp or did they... Or did they do bike riding progressions? And did your brother say, okay, you got to pedal with your right foot a hundred times. And then when you get that pedal with your left foot a hundred times, and now we're going to add the handlebars. And no, no you learned to ride. A bike. Just, you just go on it and just start riding your bike. bike. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how you learn. You learn by doing. Now, the biggest challenge in your sport and mine is that, you know, you've got this 11 on 11 situation with a ball. So essentially, in, in as far as the motor skill of doing a soccer kick or a shot or a pass, that's only being learned by really one player while the other 23 are watching. In my sport, it's one player and 11 others watch. Mm. And when I say doing, the reason it's so important to do and not just watch is because imagine if you'd learned to ride a bike with 12 other people in one bike, it would have taken you 12 times longer to learn to ride the bike. Mm. But no, when you ride a bike, you do immediately. You're on the bike. Well, I've got two wonderful kids. One's playing in Berlin right now for Berlin Recycling and on the uh, as a starter for that great volleyball team. And another kid is amazing and a coach and another kid and my step kid side is, you know, doing all sorts of amazing um, learning stuff about speech pathology and all of that. I each of them learned to drive a car at about the age of 16 here in the U.S. They had watched me drive my car 16 years. Did they know how to drive the car, which is a motor skill? Yeah, of course. Um, no, the, well, the, I guess the simple answer is no. They, would, they probably didn't. 
No, the, the simple answer is no, because my insurance rates were like $2,000 a month for the first year. <laughs> and then as they, as they learned to drive, my insurance rates went down, but they drive a car by doing the driving, not by 16 years of watching. So small sided game and pieces of the sport in every case are incredibly important for team sports to learn how to be good when you're young and even when you're old. I mean, I was working with the USA hockey at their level five thing at Lake Placid where the Olympics used to be. Sure. And the Detroit Red Wings coach said, now I understand why my guys love to play cross ice two on two right. because they know they're learning by challenging each other, even though they're pros. So question on that then john you know just to get your views yeah. on something before you continue though that idea I'm, I'm i'm personally a little bit conflicted by the idea of uh you know the use of small-sided game not because i don't think they're beneficial um ultimately you know it's, it's a game related it's a game it's a game situation so they're going to pick up a, a lot of elements of that now um why i say i'm conflicted because i think a lot of coaches in my in my experience so you know one of my roles is um similar to yourself i work with coaches as a coach educator um, and I've come across many coaches who often hide behind this phrase of let the game be the teacher. I'm not sure if that's something that you're familiar with or something you guys use over there. Um, but it's, yeah, I think a lot, of, a lot of coaches probably hear that phrase and actually fall into a habit of actually just hiding behind putting a game on, if that makes sense. And there's, there seems to be no actual coaching going on and more just facilitation of a game, if that makes sense. It does. And that, again, is let me let me put it this way. Um, in my experience, what we're going to be talking about here is not about something being right or wrong. What it is, is about which way is more effective and which way is more efficient to learning, to getting this stuff to get into the athletes brains or for us right now to get into your coaches brains so that they can implement it. And in my experience, the fact is, is that watching doesn't teach you as in a motor skill, it's doing. Yeah. I mean, I have some surgeon friends who, uh, who teach a motor skill called <laughs> uh, surgery. That's a pretty important skill. Mm. It's, it's a skill likes kicking a soccer ball you know your brain tells your muscles what to do there is no muscle memory it's your brain that does all this stuff so you got to get it into the brain and in doing so they have a phrase in residency that says see one do one teach one and i'm very much believe uh the concept of john uh cotton dana that says who dares to teach must, must never cease to learn. So here we are learning because we are teachers. Now, I, I would argue a little bit about here's an effective change, I think, for you. Are you a coach educator or are you a coach facilitator? Um, I guess oh, for me, facilitator. I, I would, yeah, I, I would definitely consider it as a facilitator because I, I very rarely uh, offload information i'm more in some ways creating an environment for coaches to learn and challenge themselves in that respect if that makes sense exactly so i would say uh, about four minutes ago you said you do coach education 
And I would say you'll have a little bit more effectiveness if you spend the rest of your life thinking of yourself as a facilitator more and less of an educator. <laughs> you know, sure. It's just a little tweak. Sure, sure. I totally agree with that. And so what, the other thing I was thinking about is I want to share some facts about high-level success in the United States in my sport called volleyball. So here's a quick one-minute summary, and then I'm going to ask you a question or two. In the United States, the number one girls high school sport prior to COVID was volleyball. It was ahead of football, you know, soccer. It was ahead of basketball, ahead of softball. It's the number one sport. So they're getting really good athletes in high school. They get around 15,000 scholarships here in the United States. That's four years, essentially, of professional volleyball, where you get a coach and you get fed and you get education, and you get trained, and you get it for four years. And so there's 15,000 of those opportunities in our, quote, pro league for women. And then we go off into the Olympics. And in the last 64 years, we 65 years, we've won one world gold medal, no Olympic gold medals or anything. On the men's side, as a fact, in the last 35 years, we've won three Olympic medals and five other world championship titles, you know, where the whole world comes together, like in football, uh, in the World Cup, we've won the World Cup, we've won the world championships. We've won nine of them total. The women have won one. They have 15,000 scholarships and great athletes. How many scholarships are, do you think, this is for you to just guess, are there for men in the United States at the collegiate level for volleyball? How many? I mean, I, I would guess less than 15,000. The answer is less, yes. I would guess less. I think, it, and I think it'd be if you become a more specialist thing. I think, uh, I mean, my naivety is telling me that there's probably a lot more women that play the game than men. So um, naturally, there probably would be less opportunities, or especially in terms of scholarships, uh, as a result of that. So um, if I had to take a guess, I'd probably say closer to the, maybe probably less than five thousand at least. Anyway. Pretty much American answer as well. Some yeah. people will guess more, but the, here's the facts that knowing what I just said about this nine to one ratio in, in medals, the facts are we have less than 200 for men. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that doesn't 15, surprise me. I'm not just kidding. <laughs> 15,000 for the women and less than 200 for the, for the men. And yet nine medals. So the coach who knows how, or I'm sorry, the coach who knows why beats the coach who knows how. Why with just 200 scholarships and our best athletes, as you can imagine, they go into NFL football, they go into major league baseball, they go into NHL. It's not the number one boys sport in high school. Sure. It's about 15th. We're not getting great athletes and we only have 200 to get this experience. And yet against all these pro leagues, including Brazil and Russia, we win gold medals. 
Why? Mm. The why is why we're talking. We win more because the men share the ideas with each other. Those small numbers of teams, there's about 20 Division I men's teams versus nearly 400 women's teams <laughs> at the D1 level, alone the D2 and 3. They swap ideas freely because, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. And we want the men's team to do as well as the women in our case, because we swear share ideas far more freely on the men's side. We're seeing huge success internationally because of sharing ideas. Mm. And, just, and that, just kind of go into that, then, you know, I want to take you back a few seconds there. You know, you talked there about the coach of the, the coach of the why beats the coach of the how. Um, for maybe the listeners that aren't too, I guess, sure what you mean by that. Would you mind just breaking that down for us? Yeah, it, it came from a multi-gold medalist track and field gal named Jackie Joyner-Kersey, who happened to also be there when she was in seventh and eighth grade. And she and I were talking at the, our Olympic training center one day for lunch, and we talked about how important the why is over the how. It's, it's easy to know the how it's more important to know the why and because if you're playing i'm going to say it to the players the player who knows why beats the player who knows how so in my sport it's kind of yeah. when a player makes an error the next thing they do on many teams is turn their head and look at the coach yeah. when you see that happening that means that the coach has not taught the players to problem solve on their own. The coach has kept all the secrets of what the solutions are to that error or whatever to themselves or that the answers come. But in the field of play with players like Messi and Ronaldo and the, way, the things that they can do so creatively on the court, on the field in your case, those guys aren't looking at the coach for the answers. <laughs> or the solutions yeah. they're problem solving in real creative time based on all their experiences and that's why i want a coach to say why a lot or to tell the ask the players why not because the player is unskilled but because the player if I guide your discovery, this is maybe one of the most important parts of this podcast in a term. There is intrinsic learning and coaching where I coach myself to ride a bike. And it just so happens when I do that, because I learned the bike riding myself, essentially, without any coaching, the learning is very deep. In fact, if you went and haven't ridden a bike for two years, what's going to happen when you hop on a bike two years after not riding it? You're going to have to pay uh, extra thought and attention to what the process of what you're doing, essentially. How long? Ten seconds? <laughs> you know, maybe. And then you start riding. Because it was so well learned, you can immediately start to ride the bike, even though you haven't ridden it for a long time. Mm. Now... The worst learn, remember, this is about learning. 
The white belt mentality means I'm here to be an, an everyday new learner. I start with my white belt each day. So every day is kind of day one. You know? So extrinsic coaching it, where somebody tells me what to do is the worst learned way of doing motor skill. Mm. I, it's interesting because I, I mean, uh, I learn it. I learn it, but it's not as well remembered and I can't problem solve new stuff. I have to turn my head to the coach and say, what do I do now? (laughs) That's not good coaching. It it really resonates with me because I actually wrote a a blog earlier in the year on this, uh, you know, the whole idea of implicit versus explicit learning. Um, And I remember if I go back a couple of years back, um, I was on a qualification, you know, and as part of the qualification, you had to do a case study. And, you know, one of the, I guess, key strands of the case study was to identify and, and really answer the question of, um, or around our philosophies. And it, it, even back then, I said to myself, well, I consider myself as someone who is, uh, who is the coach of the why and not the how or the what. Um, uh-huh. I say, I'm more, I'm more interested in getting to an outcome rather than how we get there and if you know if the player working with the player we can identify a more efficient way of them getting there then you know it will we'll, we'll go down that path but ultimately it's about developing individuals or helping individuals to develop a mindset of um i i'd like to go down the path of interdependent rather than independent um in the sense that i want them to be able to make their own decisions but i want them to be interdependent and socially developed confident enough to feel to engage with me on that process if they feel the need to. Um, uh, exactly. Exactly. And, and so your listeners should feel comfortable understanding that it, while it's not as best learned or well-learned as implicit learning all by myself, it's almost as close if you guide their discovery. And that's the like, them to go walk on the field and say to themselves, my job is to facilitate these players and guide their discovery because the coach has a lot of knowledge and the game may be played as they just learn through the game. But my job is to be a questioner, a guider of discovery by it may take three steps to get to the answer that I used to do in one by saying, do this. But if I can get my kids my athletes to ask themselves and problem solve that and get to that answer on their own with my guidance, they figure it out. And then they don't need to look over at me for the answers. Absolutely spot. And I think I definitely agree with that. Now, my only hesitation would be with that is that with the, with what what I'm seeing, and if I come back to what I mentioned at the start, this whole, let the game be the teacher and hiding behind the the, the small sided game element is I think, I feel that a lot of coaches are now, this could be a generalized statement, I could be incorrect, but from my observations, what I feel is that a lot of coaches are steering away, certainly in this sport where we talk about having a four-corner model and, you know, working across those four corners, we've got the technical and tactical stuff, we've got the psychological stuff, the physical and then the social. I feel that because there is a four-corner model now, a lot of coaches are now hiding away or hiding behind the four corner model and neglecting uh, the underpinning of the technical content, um, whatever that may be. Now, I agree 
as coaches, we're not, you know, what you're saying, we shouldn't necessarily be offloading and telling the players how to do it because it's, it's not going to help them. It's not going to be the most efficient or effective way for them to kind of really ingrain that information in, on board with themselves. However, if we're looking at being able to guide that discovery and ask those questions, would you mind just talking to how important it is that the coach still understands the how? Yeah, technique. Or to an extent, understands a way of doing it. Yeah, technique is important. Absolutely, it's it's my argument personally, and when I work with athletes, that there's a huge in your sport and my sport, especially in my sport, where do you know how much time we touch the ball in an Olympic Games per player on average? The total Olympic Games. The ball is on our skin in volleyball less than one minute for an entire Olympic Games per player. Mm. So where I'm going to address this, including football for you, is that the technique can be learned and understood without the ball. Show me what this chest pass should look like. And... I can show you how my body should react on a chest pass or how my header should look if I'm shooting it to the right or left. Or in my case, you know, I hold my forearms to pass the ball or I reach up to spike a ball. I can do all that and understand the technique. What's a header shot into the goal look like? Well, I'm going to jump and then I'm going to flick my head in the right direction so it goes where the goalie isn't. Okay. I now know the technique. What is hugely challenging is to do it at the right place and time. So Mm. knowing the difference between intent and outcome as a coach is really important. You, if you see the intent, even though the outcome was a failure, but it was done with the right intent that you're on the way to becoming a great player. But I'm going to give an example in my sport because it's kind of like heading, uh, you know, corner kicking and trying to head the ball into the goal. I think, you know, we, every third hit, we attempt to jump as high as we can. And at the top of our jump, connect with the ball and spike it. And we do that Mm. every third contact. What we see technically is a lot of errors that, I don't think are technical. They're errors of being in the wrong place at the wrong time because I'm still learning to read the ball. The most important skill, I would argue, in soccer, football, as well as my sport of volleyball, is reading. Reading is the most important skill, not the technical kicking here with my instep on this. No, it's reading the game to be at the right moment place and time. So in spiking, we see a lot of players hit the ball when their arm, their hand is kind of by their head. And it should be at really high extension, right? You've seen spikers, they hit at full extension. They reach up high and they hit the ball as high as they can. But they don't want. Mm. And as a young coach, picking on me as a young coach, not knowing what I know now, I had things like reach, extend, Get on top of the ball. I said, get your, technically, I said, technically, get your elbow up. And when I was a young coach, I was really negative. So I would say, don't drop your elbow. 
And all of those things are technically right. But if I take the kid and say, show me what a spike looks without a ball, they do beautiful full extension. They understand it. What they're doing is they're putting their hand on the ball at that moment in time and they're late. To that kid guiding their discovery, not telling them the answer. If you went earlier, where would the ball be? If you went later, where will the ball be? And they finally realize if they had gone a little bit earlier, the ball would not have fallen as far and they would then reach and make me happy technically, but it really isn't technique. It's that they're simply at the wrong place at the wrong time, just by a tiny mm. three thousandth of a second, maybe or something, you know? No, hundred percent. I totally agree with you. And I think these, you know, I certainly when I'm working with my players, I, I refer to it as, you know, I, I love using analogies in the, in when I work with, you know, whether I'm working with coaches or players and, you know, I, I use the analogy of green lights or traffic lights, essentially. Now, I say to him, well, this, you know, we need to, as a collective, we need to identify when we, have, when, when we have our green light moments. Now, there's going to be times where categorically, this is a no, we can't do this. And, you know, therefore that becomes your red light moment. Now, somewhere in between that, there's going to be times where you might be able to get away with something, but it's probably not the most, uh, it's probably not the safest time. And there's probably an element of risk involved in that. Now, given any context we're in, I want us to be able to identify what those are. And essentially, the, I feel that, you know, from my experience, that process of going through that and all the essentially what if moments. And uh, I guess it, in some cases, it could just be populating a, a, bra a brainstorm or a spider diagram of some sort, identifying all the potential outcomes from each given situation within reason. Um and saying right which ones are green lights what's and what does this green light mean for this context here and that context if you get where i'm going with this just so they can start to understand okay well, this is when i might apply this based on xyz or i might apply that based on this and i might apply that based on so and so if that makes sense sure and yeah, going yeah. through that process certainly helps and um, you're you're simply helping them learn the why the red yeah, green and yellow are why <laughs> exactly that so, so guess, you know the question beyond that sorry go on uh, so for me i'm gonna i'm gonna quote a very famous uh author from the united states that maybe many people in europe know his name is martin and he talks about the two most important days in your life the first is the day you're born and the second is why you were born when you discover that why so your listeners have this passion for teaching kids so two things come to mind for me because of my principles of learning a skill i have a heart surgeon friend a neurosurgeon friend and an orthopedic surgeon friend and they all do motor skill called surgery but they were watching some volleyball coaches because their daughters have played for many years and they said our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too that's the beauty of noom they build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions medical issues and other personal needs so your plan works for you 
Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, if I practiced medicine now the way I did five years ago, I would be sued for malpractice. That's how much their motor skill learning is evolving and changing in order to be the best surgeon they can be. But in coaches... (laughs) They keep teaching the way they were taught and not doing this white belt mentality, not ancora empowering and still pushing themselves to learn. They just keep doing what they're comfortable with, for lack of a better word. Now, the reason I do what I'm doing, the reason I'm here today in no small part isn't just about the learning. It's about I do this to develop amazing leaders. when somebody says condense your coaching philosophy down into three words, I say develop amazing leaders. It, it doesn't say win a gold medal or whatever. It's kind of like with the All Blacks. And I love their program. I've had a chance to work with them too, you know, because principles are principles. The, the culture and ability to te- develop leadership is, I believe, more important than the the skill of football. (laughs) It's the, you know, why do I coach? I coach to develop leadership skills. Therefore, I'm not going to be a coach who is transactional. You know, the transactional coach is kind of like our President Trump right now. He's Everything's a transaction. What's in it for me? You know, it's about me versus a transformational coach. I hope that your listeners think about becoming more of a transformational coach so that they can develop these athletes' leadership skills for the life. So I'm going to wrap around and say something that I think is really important. I think it's really important that every player coaches teaches younger players or less experienced players it's that which you teach you learn that's a fact and so i have practices where 
let me lay it out in a way that might work in football. We practice twice a week with our 13s, and then we practice twice a week with our 14s for two hours each. So that's, you know, four hours a week. Every other Tuesday for one of those two hours of a practice, my 13s coach little kids in small-sided games, pretend even being a player on their team or being the goalie if you did football or being a, their wingman or whatever. I don't know. You know, that they play small-sided games with littler kids and teach the sport to these younger kids. The next Tuesday, those same little kids come, but they're taught by the 14 and under team. So in an entire month, my athletes are giving back to the sport and learning leadership skills and learning that which you teach you learn by two hours, just two hours every other Tuesday. The kids come every Tuesday and get a great hour of experience. And at, at young levels, you know, that's not probably enough that that's all they can handle. What is so incredible because just, just doing this for a few years is to see the level of incoming players in the scholastic just keeps going up because the kids are getting a coach who isn't that far off their age group, you might say. I mean, it, you and me talking to a 12-year-old, what are you doing? Mm. 70 years old. Don't talk to me. I don't. You don't know what I'm going through. But a 13-year-old talking to a 10-year-old remembers what it's like to be 10 and can dialogue better. And so, but it also makes yeah, you know, I mean, I think just on that though, you know, I think it, again, I can really resonate with that because, you know, um, when I first started coaching, uh, I was I think eighteen or nineteen at the time, and I was working with under fourteens, um, and for me, I, I'd always said at the time, I, I don't find it a challenge at all because I can really bring myself down to the level. I mean, it might be a big ask for me to try and get them up to my level, but it, it, by no means in any way was it an ask for me to go down to their level because I understood. I was close enough in age to understand their mentality, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so I, I guess the question that follows from that then is, it, do we have an expiry date with the groups that we can work with in that respect? Uh, do we have what? Do we have an expiry date for how long we can work with certain groups in that sense? Oh, no, I, I don't think so at all. Um, it, it It's one of my joys to see a principal or a Paralympian and work with a 13-year-old because it, or 10-year-old because it's a principle you know, of if I teach it, I learn it. Now, I live for the last 25 years. I just uh, this month signed off of my board position with World. And I've been the director of development there for a decade. And I'll tell you, starting in the 95 era, when I started to work with Paralympians, think technique if you want to start to realize that every athlete should have a concept of technique but the personal application of that is totally personal i as a young coach would say in forearm passing put your right foot forward or do this or do that but when you work with paralympians who have no legs but they're playing the game of sitting volleyball on the floor. 
which only has four rule differences from Olympic game, the Paralympic game and Olympic game only has four rule differences. What, what I had to do was realize that technically I have to keep my concepts, my principles, have to let that athlete figure out what that is for themselves because their balance is not with any legs or they have one leg and the other one's chopped off you know, from cancer or from a car accident or a bomb or whatever. And working with Paralympians really opens your eyes to the importance of principles and concepts and te technique, but letting the athlete become their own human of technique, you know, player and know everything on their own because the, this whole thing of reading being the most important skill, I think is incredibly important. And I'm going to throw a phrase here also for the, that's kind of one of my pet peeves. And I think it's the case. It, it was certainly my case as a young coach, as a young coach, I collected drill books back pre-internet, Bob Bratton's 350 volleyball drills. Oh my God. And then three years later, he came out with another drill book, 400 volt plus more volleyball drills. Oh, I've gone to heaven. I, I was teaching my kids drills and not to play. And I spent a lot of energy. Oh God, I spent a lot of time teaching all these drills, which in my sport way too often are not in any way, shape or form like the game. It's what we call coaches practicing for practice and not to perform. We see that in volleyball because we have a net and yet probably 50% of the drills in that book were done in front of the net. Even though in the game, there's never a ball that, that comes from in front of the net. But we may, but practice looks better because there's not a net in the way to screw up the hit or to screw up the serve. You're standing on the ground in front of it. So practice looks really good. But when the reality of the game, what we call train in reality, Marv Dunphy taught me that. He's our gold medal coach from 88. You got to train in reality. We don't do it nearly. So our women's and men's Olympic teams probably only do now a dozen drills. They change the scoring, they change the uh, outcome, they change the way you can set it up, you know, narrow court, wide court, small-sided, full-sided, you got to do this before you can start to do this. But they're playing a game with the scoring providing the, the technique and, the, and the, the learning because you don't get a point here or you get two points if you do this. We call it it's probably not a term that's used too much in your sport of football, but it's called wash scoring because every serve results in a point like tennis, you know, essentially or ping pong, table tennis or whatever. Every serve results in a point because of that. Um, we've come up with scoring variations. How many in a row in order to win this game? versus the other team how many out of 10 can you do versus them out of 10 or wash scoring this is the concept of wash scoring you get a you know it's interesting you i mean I literally just 
in the last week or so, I've, I've kind of, again, everything you're saying really resonates. So, you know, the first, the first bit you talked there about training in reality. Um, you know, I, I've been working on a course uh, just the, just last week, in fact, where I'm really trying to draw home the message of we need to move away from being facilitators of learning, uh, so facilitators of practice, and actually facilitators of learning. So we need to start coaching the players, and that doesn't mean you have to tell them what to do. It doesn't mean you have to, but you can't just put on a as you would refer to it, as a drill and expect that they're going to be able to take that information or take what they've done in that draw into the game without understanding the why. And this is coming back to the start. And the second part, obviously, you just touched on there as well, is looking at that wash scoring thing that you mentioned there. And, you know, I, I, I literally, if I'm looking for a certain outcome, I did this just a couple of nights ago working with a young, young group of players and I wanted them to get this particular outcome and the only way they were going to get success from it in, the, in this game and be able to win the game was obviously they can score more points than the opposition but because it was Wolves just had one goalkeeper in this particular session um, they had to then perform an action three times in a row without interruption from the opposition um, or without the opposition scoring themselves in order to win the game um, you know and I think that that idea of really trying to push them to, well, I guess you're not manufacturing the success, but you're definitely guiding them in a certain direction to get them to, to, to I guess, increase the repetitions of what exactly, you're exactly. Sense. And where wash scoring comes into play is that in in um, slang in the U.S., if you get this and I get that and it's equal, we call it a wash so that nobody is ahead, you know, it's just a wash. Um, so in wash scoring, kind of like your three in a row thing that you spoke of just before, in wash scoring, if, mm. if I'm really good compared to my opponents, I have to do two points on the board or three points on the board to their one or two. And, and I have to do it in a row. And so if you serve at me and I kill it, I've got a little point that we call them little and big points. If I served you then and you kill it, you've got a little point and that's a wash. It's one, one, it's a wash. The score is still zero, zero. But if I'm the good team and I need to get three in a row and you're the not so good team and you only need to get two in a row, that sets up the the game teaching the game with me still coaching technically and physically and mentally, you know, as this whole thing is going on. And mm. I think that's one of the biggest holes in, in most sports that I see. If I say how much of the game of football is mental, what is your answer? Sorry, could you repeat that question? I didn't quite, I didn't quite get the How much the of the game of football is mental? I think I think it's more mental than anything else. I think every aspect, if we're looking at the why element, every aspect demands us to be, uh, I guess, more mentally engaged, ready to make those decisions, essentially, and, and not just making those decisions, but reading the game, being aware of it, both of, of oneself and, you know, uh, I guess, teammates in 
and opposition members. So in volleyball, the coaches generally answer 80 to 90%. And then I turn to them and say, how much of your practice teaches that? And the answer is 10%. <laughs> pretty big, pretty big canyon you got across. <laughs> Definitely. I think, you know, you, you talk there about that. There's such a disparity in that, isn't there? Because, it, it, and, and it always always leaves me asking the question, is do enough coaches have have the knowledge to be able to just take a step back and guide the discovery? Um, have they actually taken the, the, you know, taken the opportunity to, to actually sit down and assess the different ways in which an outcome can be achieved in order to provide as I referred to earlier, those green light moments or support the the athletes in get, engaging and understanding of those green light moments. And I'm not I'm not sure there is enough coaches, and you know, more specifically now. And I feel like there's because of way things have developed, and a lot of the sports have started to bring on board the multiple disciplines within it. You now you've got your sports science teams, you've got your psychology, you know, and all these other things are now breeding their way into the sport, which I think is fantastic. I do think it is leaving a little bit of room for coaches to kind of hide away. Uh, and behind this, uh, I guess, the smoke and mirrors of the multiple disciplines. Yeah, and it's, it's important to just keep guiding this discovery of the game and the, and the possible other pathways that you know as an experienced coach, and they've never even considered it as a, as a novice or as a medium level player, or even as a high level player, they, there are things that you can buy. Now mm-hmm. I'm going to throw out one other part of my philosophy. I think I'd love your listeners to understand. And that is, um, I would challenge any coach to define their success simply by how many kids play the sport the year after you coach them not by your score by your standing in the league or whatever i say that because when i got thrown into the american volleyball coaches hall of fame the two coaches before me had records of like 900 and 300 and 1000 and 200 or something they were pretty good and i stood up in front of the crowd and said well you know my 10,325 and 37 or something like that. And everybody laughed. And I said, you see, I have no idea how many matches like these guys, they've won or lost. I have no idea. I have no clue. I know I've won a help to win some gold medals here and Pan Am gold medals here and da, 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 da. But, you know, as far as my record, I have no clue. But I can tell you this based on my challenge to your listeners right now, to never be a child's last coach. And I don't care if they move over from football to volleyball, they're still playing. But what is a tragedy for the 97% that don't go to college and play scholarship in the US versus the 3% who do, I'm working on the 97% because I want them to be leader, better leaders, not just better football players, not better volleyball players. I want them to be great citizens. We need that in this in my country these days. I want them to be more than just 
I'm not coaching volleyball players. I'm coaching amazing kids to be not just a player, but a person. And, and so if the reason I have 37 losses is because there are kids that have quit volleyball after I coach them. That's my losses, not my zero and 30 record in the league because I went zero and 30 and every single kid played on. I had, when I did ice hockey, we had it, <laughs> this is back in the seventies, uh, dear friends that are still, you know, still coaching friends of mine. We coached a team of ice hockey, Doherty ice hockey, who had no, we had no players who had skated except one. We had 30 kids out on the ice and they'd never mm. been on the ice. One player was. So our record was zero and 25. And usually it was zero and 10 on the scoreboard. But every kid came out for the team the next year. And the kids that were seniors went off to play club high ice hockey at their colleges. We did a great job coaching, in my humble opinion, because we gave them a love of the game regardless of the victories and losses, because it just so happens as a joke, I pretend this as a joke, but because it is a joke, but in 95 volleyball turned hundred. And so I pretended that we did an, I'm an international volleyball federation instructor. So, because I am, and I pretended we did a three year study researching every match played from 1895 on. And we found one very large number. That's not the case in football, but it is in volleyball. And that is that in every match played, the billions of matches played in the first hundred years, 50% of the teams lost. Now, of course, we didn't do the study. I'm just saying what the facts are. <laughs> you either win it or you lose it in volleyball. But because of that, if you focus who you are as a player, as a coach on winning and losing, you're going to be miserable half the time, probably. And that's not what you use as your standard of measurement in my world. I work, I leadership development, giving back to the sport by coaching younger players and, and the skills but it's more than just being a football player. It's this leadership, the way the culture code by Daniel Coyle is a great book. I highly recommend it. But any of the things that you read by John Wooden are awesome books. Anything you can catch by Brene Brown on daring to be great, which is regardless of what you're doing. And the all black books that have come out to talk about how their culture influences because culture eats talent for lunch listeners culture just gobbles up talent for lunch if you don't have a healthy culture of learning and sharing and you know everything that you know because your your influence jerry lynch says this well your influence is never neutral it's never neutral it's either this way or that way and i'm hoping that your listeners have picked up some ideas on how to be a more effective teacher 
facilitator of learning the sport beyond just the tech. That's what white belt mentality is in my book too. <laughs> you know, more than just judo. It's the way you conduct yourself with your elders and the way you move up the belt ranks and yet the way you continue to want to keep learning. Definitely. You know, John, look, I'm, I'm mindful of your time as well. I think, you know, you've, you've brought some very good points there. And I think, you know, the, the underlying thing here is, this, you know, it's that, that one piece around everyone hopefully listening to this is going to be taking on board some of this stuff and some of the, you know, previous podcasts that we've put out and really looking at how they can, you know, navigate themselves to becoming more close, more closely if they're not already there in some capacity a coach of the one. Yeah, and, um, and I think that's, that's, that's probably the key thing for me. It, it, you know, you had some it. really interesting things about, you know, your concern about small sided games and the coaches not coaching to listeners. Your feedback is incredibly important, coaches. That's the most important thing. By guiding discovery with your feedback, you get them to learn more effectively. I, I urge you to learn how motor skills are learned um, because with that feedback, I'm going to throw out a challenging word that, that probably doesn't exist in the English language, but it's called feed forward. I believe your information you give through questioning or through just extrinsic do this should be about something they can control in the future. Young John Kessel spent a ton of time talking about the past. It was uh, a recent podcast friend said something about you're a defect detective of defect. You know, that's what you're doing. You're running around. All you're doing is I, I call it catching them being wrong is what I did as a young coach. I'd stay silent, silent, silent. You dork. You'd make a mistake. And I'd come up and I'd talk to you. That's not effective feedback. Feedback should be summary. Summary feedback means uh, coach on the averages is the way we phrase it as well. If you do five right and no wrong, you do four right and one wrong, you do three right and two wrong, you should be coaching and addressing the good that they did and ignoring the bad. Just don't say anything about the bad. When you get to a, oh, I did a lot of that in a row, then give them feed forward, not being this de the defect detective, but talk about what or guide them to answer what they should have done. And if you say, yeah, go show me, boy, that's, that's, a, that's, that's recognizing that failure is a huge part of learning, going back to your bicycle experience, which was learned. Now, I did want to recommend, I forgot to, that everybody, now that they've gotten this far, goes on YouTube, watches a video called The Backwards Bicycle, and then asks themselves, why did he make me watch this? <laughs> because in a fascinating way, you'll see a guy who can ride a bike, they make one change to the bike, and he can't ride it for eight months. Why? Because things that we learn are specifically learned. 
There is no general motor program. And, and while techniques have principles, I'm learning the more reps I get in a train in reality game-like way, the better I'm going to be when I play the game. That's just how it unfolds. Not for practice, but for performance. And, I, and I'm certainly sure that many of the listeners will tune into that YouTube video as, as will I. Um, and hopefully give you some feedback. And on that note, if there is any listeners that do have any questions or would like to delve deeper into some of the things that we've discussed on this or beyond. Absolutely. I, I, do I don't get to them every day because I am at this, you know, now that I've retired from USA Volleyball, we're doing this Bison Peak Lodge in Colorado um, for veterans and first responders up at 3000 meters. But I will get back to them at John underscore Kessel at MSN.com. And be happy to strike up a dialogue or refer some other reading materials. You know, you guys, you probably know who John Cleese is, right? Yeah. He has an awesome article in Forbes magazine called No More Mistakes and You're Through. As you aren't making mistakes, you. And he's attempting to help business people understand that the people that challenge themselves in this white belt mentality push themselves to do new things, which means you're going to err along the way. He wants people that are working for him that are making mistakes because they're not staying in the status quo. They're pushing their own envelope. And I think that's a pretty cool way to start a, a practice or a training that I want you to make mistakes. I don't want you to be, I'm okay with mistakes. They're part of learning. You, you don't have to be perfect. Brene Brown says perfectionism is a hustle. And I totally agree. It's very self-centered to be perfectionist. You're talking about me, 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 and not about the team's success. And I think the beauty of what you're doing is getting people to think. And by the time they implement some of these ideas, I would argue pretty effectively, I think, if we could study it, that they'll be a little bit more effective and a little bit better efficiency in teaching the skills of football or whatever. I totally agree. And I think, you know, it's definitely kind of, you know, just to wrap up on, on what, what we're really saying here, I think it is that white belt mentality in a nutshell for me is having a growth mindset you know always looking at new ways to work and never quite getting stuck in the comfort zone and you know wanting to come out of that and you know i recently done a, a podcast a few weeks back with um with, with with trevor reagan from the learner lab um and trevor talked quite explicitly around this idea of the you know, being outside your comfort zone and you know if every time he steps out and does a new t does a task that he's done before he always tries to make at least one change one change to that task and you know that whatever however small or big that change may be but just by having that one change in there it, you know it almost challenges him to be more in tune and aware of what's going on so you can see how how impactful that change may really be and you know, it's through that constant awareness and that that ref, that live reflection, and even you know delayed reflection at times, where you can actually start to refine what you're doing and 
just make it better in, in every way, shape or form, whether that be you know, in the coaching space or outside. So I find that wonderful to hear that you talk to Trevor because the backstory that most people don't know about Trevor is that my kids and I went up to his mom's volleyball practice over a decade ago, I'd say. And I taught the kids in their first day of the training camp. It was a five-day training camp in Lander, Wyoming, where he's from. Uh, Janet Reagan, his mom, was, was the head coach there for years for volleyball. And I taught the kids in the court class, before we stepped on the court to touch volleyballs, motor learning and how random is better than blocked and all these other things that, that uh, matter to learning and why our camp was going to be a little different. And Trevor that night at his mom's place, he was a second or third year of basketball coaching after college, or maybe even less. And he said, John, I heard your talk on learning. I'm doing basketball camps. Does this stuff apply to basketball? And I said, Trev, of course it does. It's learning a skill that we're talking about, principles of motor learning. So everything I'd said, and then we started to talk about, well, how could you do that in basketball? How could I change my camps? And he went and made those changes, saw such a dramatic success level of passion for the kids, wanting to keep playing because they weren't being punished for doing a mistake. And they were rewarded for errors and challenged, you know, by doing things they've never done before and all this other stuff. Then he came into my office and said, I want to make a living at something. Where should I go? I said, well, you've talked to me a lot. I think you should go to our national team gym and listen and see how we're applying these principles of learning in our Olympic teams. He came away from that week with Karch Karai and uh, John Spira and said, train ugly is a, uh, is that term copyrighted by anybody? I heard Karch say that a lot. I said, you probably ought to ask Karch if he can use it. So he created his website called Train Ugly. And, and I think I was one of the first three speakers on motor learning on that website. And now he's gotten into the business world because learning is learning. you know, <laughs> And the principles apply. So that's kind of cool that you, you got him to, to speak too. I love it. Definitely, well, John. I just want to thank you again for your time this, the, the, uh, you know, this morning. Um, been very useful and I think very insightful for a lot, of, a lot of my listeners that will be tuning into this. Um, but again, I just want to wish you all the best, you know, in, in your downtime and, um, you know, still in this lockdown, unfortunately. But I'm sure we'll get we'll get out of it soon. And um, who knows, maybe a part two in the next few weeks or, or months to come. I'm sure this one will be a, a big hit for our listeners and I just want to wish you all the best. Hey, happy holidays. Stay safe. And uh, thanks for the chance to share ideas since I got some from you as well. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Grainger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Grainger. For the ones who get it done.